Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 17. This is also our sermon text. Pay close attention to the gospel of God. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please do sanctify us by the truth of your word in this hour. Give us the grace to receive what you have to say to us, to understand and to believe and to do what your word says. We ask for this grace in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Hebrews 7.25 says, He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. He saves to the uttermost, he's able to save to the uttermost, uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives. He was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand to intercede for you and me, for all of his people. He always lives, the verse says, to make intercession for you. 
That means he continually goes to the Father on your behalf. Continually presents his sacrifice to the Father on your behalf. Continually prays for you. That's how Jesus saves his people to the uttermost. The priestly ministry of Jesus didn't stop when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. No, Jesus continues to save to the uttermost those of us who draw near to God through him because he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is our high priest and his main ministry as our high priest is to advocate for us with the Father. He advocates for us because of our sin. God is holy. We are not. And so to draw near to God, we must have an advocate with God. We must have a mediator who can bridge the gap between the holy God and unholy humans. According to 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is that advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. As our advocate, Jesus pleads our case. As your advocate, Jesus pleads your case to the Father. Now, it's not as though Jesus, you know, the Son and the Father are at odds. And so the Father doesn't want to forgive and the Son wants him to forgive and he has to persuade him. That's not what's going on there. The reality is that God, who is holy and just, is also merciful. So he sent Jesus to be our advocate. He sent Jesus to be the mediator between him and man. And so that's what Jesus does. He does what his father sent him to do, which is to mediate for us, to advocate for us. He stands in our place since we cannot defend ourselves. We don't have a case before God in ourselves. Satan accuses us, how often? Night and day, Revelation 12 says. But Jesus, our advocate, intercedes for us night and day. But Jesus doesn't just pray for our salvation. He intercedes for us so that we might be saved to the uttermost. And John 17 gives us a glimpse into the kinds of things Jesus asks the Father to do for us on our behalf. Jesus' high priestly prayer, as John 17 is often called, indicates how the Son of God prays to, the, to God the Father on our behalf. So do you want to know which blessings Jesus desires for you? Do you want to know which spiritual benefits Jesus perhaps even puts at the top of the list for you? Then meditate long and hard on John 17. This is our third Sunday in John 17 as we work through the gospel of John. And this is our second time to consider this passage where Jesus prays for those disciples who followed him, 
for a few years before he went to the cross. Before we look at today's passage, though, verses 12 to 19, last week we looked at 6 to 11. I read the whole thing, but we're going to focus on 12 to 19 today. Before we look at that, I'm going to list, just to get our kind of a bird's eye view, to get our mind maybe wrapped around what, what the whole chapter is about, I'm going to list the eight requests that Jesus makes for us in this chapter. I've kind of distilled it down to A. There might be a, another way to do it. Here are the eight things Jesus asked God to do in John 17. If you have your Bibles open, I'll, I'll make reference to the verses after I say them so you can follow along in John 17. Number one, Jesus asks the Father to give us spiritual knowledge of the only true God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Knowledge of the only true God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And this, this one's comprehensive, this first one. You can, you can put virtually every spiritual blessing under the heading of knowledge of God. Knowledge of the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. There in verse 3. Number 2. Jesus asks the Father to keep us from falling away. Verses 11 and 12. Keep us from falling away. Number three, Jesus asks the Father to make us one as the Father and Son are one. Verses 11, 21, and 22. Make them one as the Father and Son are one. Number four, Jesus asks the Father to fill us up with Christ's joy. Verse 13. That our joy might be fulfilled Jesus' joy might be fulfilled in us. Number five, Jesus asks the Father to keep us from the evil one. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. Number six, Jesus asks, asks the Father to sanctify us by the truth of his word. Verses 17 and 19. Sanctify them by the truth of your word. Number seven, Jesus asks the Father to convey the message of Christ to the world through the love and unity of his people. Verses 23, 25, and 26. Convey the message of Christ through the love and the unity of God's people. And finally, number eight, Jesus asks the Father to bring us to heaven where Christ is for a purpose so that we may behold the glory, the radiant glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Some of those we'll look at next week. But what we see here is that John 17 bears the heart of Jesus for his people. It reveals his priority, his priorities for his people, for us, in a unique way, in a way that no other text in Scripture does. We get a window into the heart of Christ here in John 17. 17, which is why, as I mentioned last time, some have called it the holy of holies of sacred scripture. This prayer was prayed by Jesus on the evening before he died, just, just hours before he suffered for your sins on the cross and took God's wrath and punishment. Think about the implications of that. As, as 
Jesus drew near the apex of all human anguish and suffering. And he knew it was coming. As he drew near to this, he was still thinking about other people. About people other than himself and what he was going through. He was concerned about our spiritual well-being. He was praying for his bride in that moment. Just hours before he was to be crucified by men and forsaken by God, Jesus was thinking about our needs rather than his own. He was thinking about our temptations, our struggles, our difficulties. He was anticipating the help that we would need because of our weaknesses, because of our sinful propensities. Even in this hour of agony, he knew, he was clear-minded enough to know what to pray for, what to ask God to give us. He knew that we would need to be kept from falling away because our inclination is to fall away. He knew we would need to be kept in unity because our inclination is toward disunity. He knew even as his soul was being consumed with sorrow, as a gospel writer puts it, even as his soul was being consumed with sorrow, he knew that we would need to be kept safe from the schemes of the devil, the evil one. He knew in that moment that only God can give the joy that Jesus had, that he had, and that he wants us to have. He wants his people to experience. He knew only God could accomplish that. And so he prayed for it. He knew that our sanctification, our growth in personal holiness, was only possible by God's grace working in us through the truth of his word. Think about how theologically clear-sighted Jesus is. Think about how he, as our bridegroom, is thinking about his bride in this moment. Think about the implications of this prayer. Jesus was focused on our greatest needs during the time of his greatest need. And what's he do about it? Just before he goes to the cross, he goes to the Father. And he asks the Father to supply all our spiritual needs in his absence. So last week we covered verses 6 to 11. And there Jesus begins to pray specifically for his original disciples. And I left you last time with Jesus' words on Christian unity there at the end of verse 11. And I challenged us to be, to become more and more a church that specializes in love that produces inexplicable unity. Deep, fervent love that covers a multitude of sins. The next verse we come to then is verse 12. 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the only disciple that Jesus doesn't pray for here in John 17 is Judas, whom Jesus calls a son of perdition or son of destruction. Judas was destined for hell. Jesus even says that the falling away of Judas fulfilled an Old Testament scripture. And the scripture Jesus has in mind is the one that he mentions back in chapter 13, verse 18. There he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Judas' betrayal fulfills this Old Testament verse. In verse 12, we see that it was Jesus who kept the disciples unified. And it was Jesus who ultimately kept the eleven from falling away, as Judas did. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, he says. In this text, we see what has traditionally been called the doctrine of preservation or perseverance, I think is the better term, the doctrine of perseverance, where God works in us so that we will, according to his will, for us. Born again, children of God, make it to the end without falling away from the faith only because the Son and the Father keep them. Now, the responsibility to persevere to the end is yours. But when you persevere to the end, it's God's doing, not yours. Do you see that? The responsibility to persevere is yours. But when you persevere to the end, that's God's doing fundamentally, not yours. Paul states this truth succinctly in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. There Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. That's your duty. That's what you must do. You can't earn your salvation, but God does require you to work out the salvation that he has freely given you with fear and trembling. Next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God accomplishes in his people what he requires of his people. Augustine captured this idea well in his famous prayer that Pelagius hated, took issue with. Augustine prayed, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. So command whatever you want, command what you will, and then give, give me what you command, what you require of me. And that's what God does. He gives to his chosen people what he commands of them, requires of them. God first works into you what he requires you to work out. God works into you what God requires you to then work 
out. And it's by grace 100% of the way. So praise be to God for his irresistible, persevering, preserving grace apart from which no one would be able to continue in the Christian faith. The end of verse 12 reminds us that Jesus doesn't pray for everyone's perseverance. He only prays for the perseverance of the elect. This prayer is exclusive. Now back in John 13:8 where Jesus quotes Psalm 41:9, he tells his disciples, "I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But this, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted his heel against me." So already back back in chapter 13 he's he's speaking of Judas as not one of his eternally elect ones. So he says, I'm, I, I don't speak concerning all of you because I know who my elect are, and it's not all of you. Jesus knows whom he has chosen. And so in John 17, Jesus didn't ask the Father to give Judas saving, persevering faith. That's, and that's why Judas didn't make it to the end. Now, when we think about this, we need to remember it. It's still on Judas, right? In Romans 9, Paul answers some of the objections we might have to this. Well, who who can resist God's will? Who can find fault with somebody if it's God's will that that they're a vessel of destruction? Who can find fault with Judas? Jesus didn't pray for him. He wasn't chosen. The, The final answer to that is, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? But we know that God can work things such that he gives us a genuine freedom so that when we when Judas rejected Jesus when Judas fell away did not continue in the faith that is on Judas and his punishment is just his punishment is just it is gracious of God to give anyone persevering faith he doesn't owe it to anyone but that's why Judas didn't persevere because he was not one of those chosen ones that Jesus prayed for in this way. Now, I want you to think back and remember that, Je- that, that, that Satan desired to have both Judas and Peter. He wanted to sift each of them like wheat. But he was unable to get Peter. Do you remember why? Why was Satan unable to sift Peter the way he sifted Judas? Well, it's because Jesus interceded for Peter. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. One of the things we learn here is that God, God's preservation of the saints, of his chosen people, is an ongoing 
thing. He doesn't just zap us with regeneration and then we're good to go, like we're given a battery that lasts our whole lifetime. No, God sustains us every moment of the way, all the way to the end. And this is what he's doing for Peter. Peter was saved because he was chosen by Jesus and because Jesus intercedes for his chosen ones. We're due for a J.C. Ryle quote. He has some helpful comments on this. Quote, It is true that Christ loves all sinners and invites all to be saved, but it is also true that he specially loves the blessed company of all faithful people whom he sanctifies and glorifies. It is true that he has wrought out a redemption sufficient for all mankind and offers it freely to all, but it is also true that his redemption is effectual only to those who believe. It is true that he is the mediator between God and man, but it is also true that he intercedes actively for none but those who come to God by him. Hence it is written, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Raoul continues, This special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one, one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them. And his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. Judas fell, never to rise again, while Peter fell, but repented and was restored. The reason of the difference lay under those words of Christ to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. End quote. All of these glorious truths, if the disciples will just believe them, will lead them to a full measure of joy. All of these truths, if the disciples would just cling to them, believe them, hold on to them, will lead to their full measure of joy. That's what Jesus says in verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them, in themselves. Notice that Jesus says, my joy. A whole sermon could be preached on that, those two words, my joy. He's not talking about any joy. He doesn't have in mind general happiness. He certainly doesn't have in mind the joy that the world offers. That's not what he means at all. Jesus wants you to have a very particular kind of joy. He calls it my joy. Kent Hughes writes, He was not praying for a joy from below, but the joy that has its origin in heaven. Joy is the occupation, character, and realization of heaven. It is not dependent on circumstances, but on the love of a sovereign God. It's not dependent on circumstances, but on the love of a sovereign God. Jesus provides us a joy that is incorruptible, 
undefiled and that does not fade away when trials come, when difficulties come, when setbacks come. Which, which makes you wonder. It, it raises the question, why aren't Christians typically more joyful? Why don't we experience more often the kind of joy that characterized Jesus and even the early church in the book of Acts? Why is the joy of Jesus not being fulfilled in you? Now, we know that joy will characterize us in heaven and in the new heaven and new earth as we gather around God's throne to sing of his glory as we do what God calls us to do in that new earth without sin, without any suffering. But here on earth, we often settle for inner misery. Why is that? We know we should be joyful, but we're often not. We know we should experience victory over our despair, but often we give in to the despair. We know that our joy in Christ should transcend our circumstances, but often we allow circumstances to discourage us and depress us and to dictate our level of joy anyway. Jesus was aware of this problem. That's why he prays for us. That's why he prays for his joy to be filled up in us and his disciples. He's praying for what he needs to pray for. He's praying for what we need. But he's also aware of how our discouragement, despair, and depression can be overcome. Jesus provides two remedies for our joylessness. The first one is right there on the surface of verse 13. The first remedy is simply his words. These things I speak, Jesus says. Why? That they may have my joy. It's a simple sentence that can be easily diagrammed. He says these things, that they may have my joy. The basis for your joy is true knowledge of the things Jesus has spoken. Not just in John 17, but in all of Scripture. The basis for your, for your joy is Bible knowledge, but not just any kind of Bible knowledge. Knowledge. A lot of people have a certain kind of Bible knowledge, but not joy. The basis for your joy is Bible knowledge that penetrates your heart as well as your mind. In Scripture, joy is associated with believing, obedient, spiritual knowledge of God and His words, of God and the things that He says, the things that He has spoken. There's a joy to be found there. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Of course, God's words don't give joy to everyone's heart. A lot of people can read or hear Scripture and get no joy from it at all. And why is that? It's because it only, de- it only delights those who obey it. 
Psalm 119, verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. And back in John 15, Jesus said that obedience to his commands leads to the fullness of joy. Listen as I read again, John 15, 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Keeping God's commandments. Not just hearing them, but doing them is where we can find joy. The second remedy is fellowship with God. Back in chapter 16, in verse 24, Jesus said that the reason we should be men and women and boys and girls of prayer is so that our joy may be full. Ask, Jesus says, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is wanting to make our joy full. He says it multiple times just in this farewell discourse in the heart of John's gospel. He wants our joy to be full. And Jesus is the pattern for us. We enter into the joy of Christ precisely the same way he entered into it, by continual, ongoing communion with the Father. Think of it this way. You experience the joyfulness of Jesus when you practice the prayerfulness of Jesus. You experience the joyfulness of Jesus to the extent that you practice the prayerfulness of Jesus. See, this is where Jesus found his joy. This is not just for us, but he found his joy in God's words and doing what God said. That was his food, he even called it. So, so Jesus found his joy in God's word and in fellowship with his Father. Should we expect to find his joy, what he calls my joy, anywhere else other than where he found it? Surely not. There's a direct link between joyfulness and prayerfulness, just as there's a direct link between joylessness and prayerlessness. A praying man is a joyful man, and a joyful man is a praying man. A praying church is a joyful church, and a joyful church is a praying church. And so during the next 50 years, why not make it 100? Let's endeavor to be a church that's filled up with the Lord's joy. Let's be a church whose strength is the joy of the Lord. Now, to do this, we'll need to be a church that knows, believes, and obeys God's word. That, that, a church whose soul really does delight in the law of God and the word of God from Genesis to Revelation so that it revives our soul. We love to follow it. And we'll need to be a church that communes with God in prayer. Again, if this is where Jesus found his joy. This is the context in which Jesus experienced his joy, and he wants to give that same joy to us. Should we expect to find it anywhere else? Man, I hope you'll make it a priority to participate in the, the prayer meeting, the men's prayer meeting that's going to be every other Friday. I encourage you to make that a priority. 
Rob Toll is organizing that. It's going to be every other Friday morning. And your participation in that or in that sort of thing is probably more important than you realize. It's probably more important than any of us realize that we become more and more a praying church, a church that is on our knees as individuals, as a body, as subgroups within the body before God in prayer, praying in the Spirit with our fellow church members. This is a crucial step toward letting the joy of Jesus be fulfilled in you and letting the joy of Jesus be fulfilled in our church. Okay, so far, Jesus has addressed the relationship that believers have with God and the relationship believers have with one another. There's a vertical and horizontal dimensions here. But now, beginning in verse 14, there's, a, there's another horizontal dimension. He addresses our relationship to the world. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Do you feel the tension in this passage? Jesus wants us to remain in the world. His desire for us is not to to remove ourselves from the world, but to stay in it. And yet Jesus knows that as long as we're in the world... We'll be tempted. We'll face temptations. The temptations of the world, the flesh, and in here he mentions the devil, the evil one. To combat this, Jesus asks the Father to keep us from the evil one, to sanctify us by the truth of God's word as long as we remain in the world. You see, your attitude toward the world should not be one of withdrawal. We're all tempted to isolate ourselves more than we ought. Sometimes we'd rather just, just fly away to another world rather than live in the one that Jesus has placed us in. The world is full of tribulations and trials. There are troubles all around in this world. Our hearts fear and tremble in this world. We regularly feel overwhelmed in this world. Creation groans. We groan every day, day in, day out. Quite often, I have resonated with David's words in Psalm 55, verses 6 to 8. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. We've all had escape fantasies. And sometimes we arrange our lives in an effort to make them come true, make them realities. And if we're not careful, we become what John Stott called rabbit hole 
Christians who have little contact, contact with unbelievers, little contact in the world in which Christ has left us. We're all susceptible to this monastic tendency. Again, quoting Kent Hughes, he says, It's possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. Something that Job, Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all had in common is that they desired, each one of them expressed a desire to be taken out of this world. A few of them even asked God to do it. But God didn't grant this desire to any of them. He wanted them to stay in the world. God doesn't call us to a life of isolation from the world, nor does he call us to a life of assimilation to the world. That's the opposite problem, the other ditch. You must avoid both isolation and assimilation. Instead, Jesus calls you to a life of mission to the world. Verse 16 says that we're not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. At the same time, verse 18 says that we've been sent into the world by Jesus, just as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. The sanctifying truth of God's word will keep you from both ditches. From the ditches of isolation from the world on the one hand and assimilation to the world on the other hand. The sanctifying truth of God's word sets us apart. It sanctifies us for the mission of showing the love of Christ to the world as we live in the world. Our Lord's prayer for our sanctification holds in tension two important aspects of the believer's existence. Our life in God and our life in the world. Those are both happening at the same time. Christ's mission concluded with his departure from the world, but followers of Christ are expected to stay in the world as long as God has us here, a world in which we are sojourners and exiles, Peter says, and the writer of Hebrews says. But because we're also in God, he keeps us from worldliness. He keeps us from disunity. He keeps us from falling away. He keeps us from the evil one. Because we're in God, he gives us the joy of Jesus so that his joy is fulfilled in us even while we still exist in this world which is full of trials and difficulties. The joy that God offers you in Jesus is a joy that you can experience as you sojourn as an exile in this world. The joy offered to you is the joy of the Son of God himself. The joy he experiences, experienced and still experiences, is the joy that he offers you. It's a joy that you can have in Jesus. It's 
a joy that he experienced in this world because he knew God's word and because he continually communed with his father in prayer. And it's a joy you can have by knowing God's word and continually communing with your father in prayer. This joy is fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus because he accepted the mission that his father sent him on. He accepted this difficult, most difficult of missions. And his joy was fulfilled because he accepted that mission that his father sent him on. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross that his father sent him to. It wasn't an if when he sent Jesus to earth that he would go to the cross. It was, it was an absolute necessity. That's what he sent him to do, was to die on a Roman cross. His joy became full when he took up his cross and died. Not, not in spite of the cross, but because. Because that was his father's mission for him. And this same joy is fulfilled in you when you accept the mission that Jesus has sent you on when we accept the mission that Jesus has sent us on here in this world. For the joy set before you, endure the cross Jesus has given you. Imitate Jesus. For the joy set before you, endure the cross, the crosses that Jesus has given you. Your joy will become full when you take up your cross, deny yourself, Die to self and follow Jesus as long as he has you in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these blessings that Jesus asked you for on our behalf. Thank you for being faithful to your son's requests. Thank you for preserving us. Thank you for being near to us. Thank you for giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for giving us true joy that cannot be found in this world. Help us by the spirit you've given us to be about the mission that you have sent us on in this world. We need your help. We need your grace. We ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.